Hey, this is Doug Richmond. You're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. And I'm standing there, and it's rumbling down out in front of me, and I hear the noise behind me. And I turn around, and the rest of that bull, all the way up to the peak, had come out probably six feet at the highest part. The worst idea is to come up with some theory and then abandon your fundamentals because you're so sure that you're right. You are tuned in to episode 4.16 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND an avalanche of solutions. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I certainly hope everybody's staying healthy out there, uh, trying to stay active mentally and physically, and maybe adjusting to our, our new normal. I hope wherever you are, you're, you're staying happy and healthy. Um, I'm excited to bring you this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast featuring Doug Richmond. I'm really excited for this episode. Um, maybe I've said it before, but... One of my one of the hardest parts of doing this podcast is sitting on some great interviews for months now. Um, I interviewed Doug back in November, I believe. Went to his house uh, in Bozeman, and and he's such a welcoming guy. He welcomed me into his home and gave me a couple beers, and we sat down and and shot the shit, so to speak. Um, it was it was great sitting down with him and and hearing about his career as a ski patroller, um, avalanche worker in several different ski areas, but most uh, most of his career has been spent at Bridger Bowl. Doug started out uh, working at Sugar Bowl in Tahoe and bounced around a little bit. Went to Copper Mountain after that and a couple more stops along the way found his way to Bridger Bowl um, in Bozeman, Montana. Doug talks about this place um, as as being pretty magical and friendly and having great snow. Um, To me it sounds sounds pretty nice and and it's very evident that Doug's been been happy there for his career as a ski patroller, um, which includes a bit of time as the patrol director at Bridger Bowl, um, which he's he's stepped back from that role uh, as director. And as he put it, he was just tired of ordering all the band-aids. Um, so 
Throughout this interview, we talk about Doug's career. We talk about some lessons learned along the way. Um, talk about what makes a good ski patroller. And Doug shares a couple great stories as well. Um, so as I was pulling out of Doug's driveway after our interview, um, he asked me to do my part to make him famous. So here's my stab at making Doug Richmond famous. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Doug. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Hey, my pleasure. I was hoping you could introduce yourself, talk about maybe where you grew up, how you made your way to Bozeman and Bridger Bowl and, and your career path. Okay. I, I'd say I'm one of the luckiest humans that ever walked the planet. Uh, landed in an amazing time and place. Uh, my parents were outdoor enthusiasts, some of the early ones from the 1950s. They, uh, dad was a forester, mom a nurse. They raised four kids, put us all through college, took us skiing, hunting, fishing, camping, whitewater canoeing, all kinds of outdoor experiences when I was a kid. Got into ski racing as a kid in Missoula. And, uh, and then when I was in college, I went back east to Dartmouth. It was in the last class, 1975, of, uh, where we didn't have to compete with women to get in. It's the only reason I got in. And, uh, uh, we had a, a program there. They let women in my second year. And because of that, they went to a year round operation. And I decided at 19, start of my sophomore year, I would try to get a job skiing. When I get paid to go skiing, I figured. And, and, uh, and that pretty much wrecked me for everything else. I've been ski patrolling ever since. I'm 67 now. I'll be 67 a month or two. Uh, and, uh, never looked back. I started out at Sugar Bowl. I went around Tahoe, Lake Tahoe in the, in the late summer of 72. Most of the ski areas said, you got to come back in October and fill out applications and interviews then. And I said, well, I'm going to be away at school. And the one guy at Sugar Bowl, Chuck Otterson, said, well, I hire my own guys and train them and somebody might not work out by Christmas when you get here. So I wrote him a letter every Sunday morning for the whole fall quarter. I sent him a letter on Dark Blue Stationery. Don't forget me, I want a job. And finally convinced him to hire me on about the 12th of January, 1973. They gave me a pack full of dynamite, put me on the chairlift in the dark, went up, watched the sun come up, made big avalanches. Decided I had it made. I worked there probably three years. Got yeah, three winters while I was still in college. Got out of there and uh, I, I actually tried to get on at Alpine Meadows. Bernie Kingery was the boss at Alpine. And, and it was too early in the year. I had been fired from Sugar Bowl the spring before, the only job I ever got fired from. I tried to collect my my uh, comp time pay and got fired for that. Sugar Bowl wasn't a very good place to work. The manager was kind of a hard guy to work for. And, and uh, then, as today, the places, that's how you get a job in ski patrolling is to go to the places where they don't treat you very well. And uh, we were a training facility for Alpine Meadows. After two, three years, the Sugar Bowl guys would we wore to Alpine Meadows where they treated people better. And I tried to do that. Uh, Mr. Schwartz, the guy that ran Sugar Bowl, called me up. He'd fired me in April, but he called me in August and said he wanted me to be the patrol director for the coming year. And I said, well, you just fired me. And he said, no, that's all right. You can be the patrol director. And I said, well, let me, I'll tell you in, uh, in a week or two. And, and uh, I couldn't talk Bernie into a job, and the guy at, at Copper Mountain in Colorado 
said, sure, you got a job here if you want. Go give him hell. So I went back to Mr. Schwartz, said, we need a few more people and guaranteed days off and a little more money. He said, we don't need any of that. It's not going to snow this year. So I moved on to Colorado. It didn't snow at Tahoe for the next three winters much at all. Uh, I spent two years at Copper Mountain. I had come up here to Bozeman and seen Bridger Bowl uh, and uh, really liked Bridger. But when I came, they, there was quite a bit of complaining about the patrol director at the time. And, and uh, I'd seen enough complaining and wanted to work where the management took care of you. And so, so I went to Copper. While I was at Copper, I heard that they'd changed bosses up here at Bridger. And so gave that a try in 77 and, and uh, worked here most of the time since then. I uh, met a lift operator, crazy girl from the top of Deer Park lift, married her for a while. She was a rodeo barrel racer. And I, you know, you know what to say at the rodeo. Well, he, he couldn't stay on for eight seconds, give him a hand anyway. Uh, but anyway, we, we uh, moved up to Shelby to pursue her career out in the plains, Shelby, Montana, where there's a woman behind every tree. And, uh, I worked for the Soil Conservation Service for a summer and got laid off from that. Thought I was going to be a bartender or somebody in Shelby. And, the, and they called me from the little Teton Pasque area in Shoto. They were trying to reopen that place. And I ended up going there for the next two winters and I helped run that place. And then I came back down to, to uh, my wife got transferred down by Butte and came down there. And I spent the three dark years drilling wells in the nuclear desert in Idaho. And uh, those are the three years I didn't patrol. And then we got divorced, and I immediately called the boss at Bridger and asked for my old job back. And I don't know, that must have been about 93, 94, something like that. So I've been here since then. All right. Doug, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about Bridger Bowl, talk about the terrain characteristics and, and uh, what type of skiers come there, snowpack common weather patterns, that sort of thing. Well, it's the Bridgers are a small mountain range, north-south range. The top's about 8,400 feet or so elevation. Uh, the bottom of Bridger's about 64. It's mostly east-facing, northeast, east, southeast. Lots of little gullies, uh, small avalanche paths, lots of starting zones. doesn't have big, wide-open uh, terrain like you see a lot of places. Big sky is much uh, bigger wide open terrain. Outside our boundaries, Saddle Peak in particular, there's some big wide starting zones that that can be pretty problematic. But within the ski area boundary, it's kind of a magical spot. It, it sort of has a ramp and then a gully or a big bowl and then the next ramp kind of comes down. Steeper at the top, much steeper at the top, kind of convex shape and goes flat towards the bottom. Ski area itself shaped like a big V. Everything comes out of one point in the base area to the ridge top, and the ridge top is two and a half miles wide, something like that. The top, so there's plenty of traversing at Bridger. Nothing real long, uh, 1500 vertical. Some of the longer uh, runs that you can kind of link together, and uh, most of them a thousand or so. Uh, but a lot of different types of terrain and a lot of steep stuff, a lot of cliffs, a lot of things that cliff out. There's a uh, didn't used to be any way out of it. Now the kids just step right off at 30-foot cliffs like, like nothing. But no matter who you are, we could probably take you somewhere at Bridger and say, well, I'm not going down this. Mm -hmm. So it has the top end end things. Uh, Snowpack-wise, we, we're, uh, we're kind of in between the, uh, the wetter 
climates of say if you go west from here uh whitefish or sandpoint or or out on the west coast you get the wetter storms uh you go to colorado some of the higher elevation 12,000 foot places you get a lot more uh a lighter snow and so we're in between uh we get weak layers we almost always have a, a problem at the ground some sort of basal weak layer that we're watching every year uh, but we get some magical storms too supposedly the guys that started bridger took an airplane ride in the late 40s early 50s in the springtime and saw wondered why there was extra snow there where bridger bowl is now and looked like more snow than everywhere else and walked in there the next day and went skiing and eventually helped develop it into what it is today. As far as our, uh, our clientele, we've, we've always had the, the University of Bridger Bowl, we call it here. There's 17,000 students now at MSU, and a lot of them will get a season pass and, and spend a lot of time skiing up there. Young people, a certain amount of powder skiers have always come here. Uh, back in the late 70s, uh, one or two of the Crested Butte, I think, was one of the early telemark places and, and we got a guy named Larry Wilson moved here from Crested Butte and uh, he could ski everything and back then it was just a little tiny skinny three pin pair of slippers and three pin bindings on these things and that guy went down all the chutes everything else and so that, that he he inspired a whole culture of that kind of skiers but we didn't have a lot of hikers in the late 70s or early 80s there, there just wasn't that much stress. You could get a lot of powder skiing just riding the lifts. You didn't need to necessarily hike for more. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself on the hiking thing. Oh, back in 62, 63, John Montaigne, who was a, a, a famous, one of the early uh, rangers at Jackson and uh, a forever geology professor here at Bozeman. Montaigne uh, and his colleagues built a rope tow. Uh, one of the steepest rope toes in the world, probably, that went from the top of the Bridger Lift to the ridge top for uh, snow science research and also avalanche control work. And uh, so the, that was used for avalanche for throwing charges. There were recoilless rifles that did most of the avalanche work. And things stayed closed a lot early on in the 60s and, and into the 70s. The ridge line. The ridge line skiing. Very few yeah. people walked up there at all back then. Uh, but anyway, in about 75, Clarence Surfoss uh, became the ski patrol director. And Clarence was a very high energy uh, mountaineer. Uh, and he kind of, he, he changed things. Up until that point, pretty much everywhere around the country, we did, uh, for cornice avalanche work, we'd let the cornices get real big. And then we'd go up and drill a bunch of holes and, and do a multi-shot explosion it was really fun a lot of fun i helped make some real big avalanches doing that uh, back in my youth but clarence had a new idea which was we just go up there every day and chisel that the small cornice just keep it keep it knocked back and ski all this stuff and help stabilize it and uh that first year that he was the boss or the first year they implemented that was the year i came here to visit i came to see the science programs around the country i went to fort collins and alta and came up here to MSU. And uh, so I, you know, informally interviewed all the ski patrollers everywhere I went, seeing where, where did I want to work and what's the cool stuff going on. And, and those guys didn't like that Clarence made them work so hard. They had to shovel cornice every day. They had to carry shovels. They had to carry machetes and trim branches off the trees all the time. So 
But anyway, it was it was pretty hard work. But Clarence did uh, change the, that that assault. That by golly, you could just go out there and chisel the cornice back and keep it keep it knocked back all the time. And we've done that at Bridger ever since. Uh, so with that, we also started the hiking program, the transceiver required. Uh, early on, you had to have a transceiver and a shovel and a partner to go to the ridge, and you would flip down a little clipboard box and sign it out. Richmond Party of Three going to Hidden Gully. And then after your run, you were supposed to come back and check off the box that, yeah, we survived. And it would take a week or two, 1978, to fill out one piece of notebook paper. That's how many people were hiking up to ski the ridge. Uh, and the, my first year, we didn't have the Pierre's knob lift, so the whole South Bowl at Bridger was was powder skiing until the wind messed it up. It was rare that we skied up the whole thing between storms or before a wind event. So you could go south on the ridge, ski the nose, for instance, and then just keep moving south, take the next line that hadn't been skied yet. So was, there was a lot of good powder skiing back in those days, and, and it just gradually built more and more people hiking. Uh, then it became the cool thing to, to, uh, to uh, have that kind of uh, harder exercise work and ski the steep stuff, and, and uh, we got a lot more people. We started having trouble with the, with the partner rule, the transceiver rule. Ski patrollers aren't cops. They're not, that's not why they're there, is to, is to hassle other people and that. And, and so the cops and robbers, uh, we don't want that kind of thing. We, one of the things we work on is bogus rule reduction. We want our, our rules to be something that makes sense to everybody. And, uh, uh, and, and because of that, I think we've maintained uh, better than average relations with our, with our locals. They, they understand we're trying to get all the skiing for them. We can, we can't help that they've got so many other people just like them out there that, that kind of, you know, three of them are your best friends, but 300,000 of them is uh, too many. Uh, but anyway, that, that's kind of how that's all developed. And, and it's really changed the avalanche work too, because in the, in the earlier days, storms would accumulate more than one at a time. And, and, uh, uh, weak layers would, would persist more because of the less skiing and, and with the, with the amount of trampling and, and uh, just the sheer numbers that we throw out these days, we tend to beat up each new storm layer or wind event. We can beat it up pretty good with our skiers to where uh, we don't get as many of the bigger slides as we used to. But since the Clarence days, we've had this approach of uh, just keep after it every day and make a million little tiny avalanches and, and uh, kind of boring little slides were glorified snow movers <laughs> and bridger bowl is a community-owned ski area is that right there's a bridger bowl association which owns the ski area a lot of the land is private the parking lots and the first lifts out of the base area are all on private owned by the bridger bowl association land we have a nine member board of directors uh which the if if you're a montana citizen you can pay i think it's 25 dollars to become a member and then you pay a $10 a year membership fee to stay active and, and vote towards our board of directors. And then those people administer the budget, hire a general manager and, and uh, put all the profits back into the ski area. So there isn't a fat guy at the top keeping any of the money. Uh, and, and it's been a lot of money the last few years with all the expansion, with all the extra numbers that we're seeing. So we've been able to put some money into buildings, new lifts. Uh, I should also mention Randy Elliott. Randy started in the 70s, about the same time I did, and, and uh, he had grown up around here. His dad was uh, head of maintenance for 
Yellowstone Park. I think he lived by Glacier Park for a while as well. But anyway, so he grew up in a, in learning to run heavy equipment and uh, working in outdoor jobs and uh, just super athlete, super sharp guy. And he's he's pretty much run Bridger Bowl. Oh, he ran ran the whole place. He was the mountain manager, general manager, best guy on avalanche control, best groomer driver everything for us for for uh, many many years he's he just retired here last year we'll still have him for for all of that search and rescue and and helping on the storm days and so forth his wife assures me he's retired i think he's in new zealand right now screwing off i hope you are randy <laughs> sounds like the type of guy that's there eight days a week huh that's right yeah that's right uh and and the reason i brought him up was he he kind of was spearheaded the design and uh, upgrade of all our lifts on the mountain. Pretty much every tower on that mountain's where where Randy thinks it ought to be. Super low ego guy. I ride the chairlift with people. They say, "Oh, I've been at Bridger for thirty years. I know everything about Bridger." And I say, "Well, do you know Randy Elliott?" And, well, I might have heard the name. So he's he's kind of under the under the radar. There was there's a story. One lift operator had, had been working there for a couple of months, and and uh, something went wrong with that lift, and he showed up at the bottom of the lift and. She turned to somebody and said, who's that maintenance man that always shows up when something goes wrong? So he was really the head maintenance man. But anyway, he's part of our uh, our avalanche program. He's one of the low ego uh, leaders that's that's helped make it a, a great program. Faye Johnson was another. Faye uh, uh, was a pioneer in, in female professional ski patrolling. Became our boss in the oh, mid-90s, I guess. She's with us starting in the 80s. And uh, became a patrol director in mid '90s. She was a patrol director for 14 years, which is a uh, hard record to beat. I think I, I might have lasted nine before I gave it up last year. Uh, but anyway, Faye, Faye led us to greatness and uh, and uh, greatly improved our medical skills. And she was able to find just remarkable people to work on that patrol. And those folks have formed a nucleus that attracts others. So it's it's a it's just a pleasure to be in the hiring situation where that we are, where where all these people come to us that that uh, all of them are better ski patrollers than I am, and, and uh, it's hard to pick. You know, some some years we don't hire anybody. Uh, this year I think they've hired three or four. Uh, two we hired I think last year. Anyway, it's a there's not a lot of turnover. It's it's a great great low ego kind of communist operation. Everybody chips in and and. Uh, works pretty well right must be pretty high satisfaction amongst all the employees at bridger bowl i have to imagine yeah yeah we have we have a, a remarkable percentages of of the uh, almost every department the cafeteria folks come back just because they have fun working together that that uh kind of low ego and and uh, why don't we have some fun at it approach is uh, pervasive up there and, and uh, we've got a great lift crew uh, it's just a pleasure. So you talked a bit about the cornice mitigation on the ridge line. Um, talk about some of the other avalanche forecasting and mitigation techniques that are used at Bridger Bowl. Well, like a lot of places, early season is real important, following the snowpack and trying to do some trampling. Uh, like I said, we're real steep up high. The steep stuff doesn't give us any trouble. Mm -hmm. If it's steep enough to just slide every day, every storm, we can clean it out and start over if we get bad weak layers and that sort of thing. But but we sort of target the stubborn angle, I call it, 
uh, zones in that 36 38 degree range where we don't do very much blasting so so early season we'll try to keep an eye on those things trample them a lot we may put shots even though we know it's not going to go staple shots that that help break up the the continuity of the slab or of the weak layer and uh, and cause some age hardened kind of staple marks that, that kind of help hold those those areas that are stubborn angle anyway you take the avalanche one class or they put up some sort of chart that shows this 35 36 38 degree is where the avalanches happen and uh and that's a little bit misleading in that that's where the big ones happen they don't go look very often at that angle that slope will stay there a lot of the time for you so it doesn't go often but it often goes big when it goes and that's why those show up there is the big avalanches that people go and look at that have caused the big accidents number one they're bigger and number two they're less predictable or less expected it's more of a surprise holy mackerel that doesn't usually slide as often so those kind of areas are a important part for our control program is to is to is pound the heck out of them early season right now we've got people hiking i bet there's a dozen hikers up there today hiking around uh, uh helping us with that part of that that uh process and then as soon as we get going we try to we try to put our folks on a, a specific route takes 20 of us 10 teams in the morning uh, to get the place open and uh, each team member has most of us have one route that we'll be responsible for mine's b south has been for several years and uh, so I, I know where all the stubborn angle spots are out there i go and address all of those and, and uh, trample around out there early season watch it develop and, and kind of keep the handle on it all year long and that's what everybody should be doing uh, wherever you are at home you know where your home skiing is is, is uh, get out there and have a look early listen to the forecast every day now we got the avalanche you know the forecast folks that we didn't have in the early years and uh, they're just a great help to to kind of help you remember that so who's kind of orchestrating these mitigation mornings is there one person or do you guys all come together as a patrol and and kind of determine shot numbers and shot placements how does that work it's yeah it's like i say we're a little bit communist we have a snow safety director each day that that snow safety or maybe the assistant uh will be in charge of the entire avalanche program and, and the closure decisions what's open and what isn't it, it becomes a the responsibility of one individual and they don't have other responsibilities for that day that's their job is to is to make sure we close things that need to be closed and then we also have a north and a south we split it up into two sides and uh, there'll be two more snow safety folks similar deal that's their job today so there's three people a day that are really calling the shots for that day but as far as the routes you know be south i went there yesterday or or whatever and, and uh, so I'll say what I want for shots where I, what I've been doing haven't doing there there isn't a like some places where they'll they'll give you a sheet that says you're putting four pounds here and two pounds there and and, uh, and you and you shoot what you're told uh, we go we go try to see everything and, and there are certain places that we do shoot most storms we have a lot of aerial tram wires that we that we uh, suspend shots from and, and those will echo through a whole arc of cliff bands and take out a bunch of things at once that, that uh, so we don't have to go to all those places pushing on the ski cutting uh, Ray Dombrowski is our guy Ray's a genius he's he's uh, another guy from the 70s 
we've had forever. And he was an early pioneer in creating the uh, the wires, bomb wires, we called them back then. We try not to say bomb anymore. That's yeah, that's a terrorist word, I guess. We're, we're more charges and whatnot. But anyway, uh, uh, Ray developed all kinds of different deployment methods and has has come up with some that are just beautiful. We have a counterweight belay system. It's called. It's uh, that's really cool but we have several of those kind of wires i have a couple on the route that i do it and, and uh so we'll go to those and hit them a lot but, but it's fairly free form as far as what we want for shots we tend to have to come back around for another pass and we'll we can pick up more shots if we need them then uh, all hand routes no avalanchers or artillery we, we no longer have artillery we've never had avalanchers uh, uh never used avalanche we've we had 75 millimeter recoilless rifles in the early 70s they built two or four concrete bunkers for shooting those rifles from and uh we got down to by the 90s we were mostly just shooting one of them the piers knob gun at d route and also some of the stuff uh in the slushman's uh above the top of piers knob uh, to to control that area but we got rid of those we built the slushman's lift uh which was what 08 2008 I think we built Slushman's Lift and, and uh, that was the end of the shooting. The last season we shot was probably 07, 08 mm -hmm. and now it's all hand routes. And so the Slushman's Lift, that this, I've heard of this lift and it, it's uh, kind of been a focal point in, in some human factor decision making, terrain use management studies lately um, because it gives you pretty good access to some backcountry skiing, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, the Slushman's Lift is another Randy Elliott gem. He bought the lift. It was the old uh, Peruvian lift at Snowbird. He bought that lift, uh, had a, a lot of the parts re, uh, refurbished and, and bought new chairs and put this thing up a, a pretty steep one of these ramps in the Bridgers. Uh, pretty darn steep terrain that accesses a lot of cliffs and whatnot. We decided that uh, it's only got 60 chairs on it. It doesn't it doesn't have a lot of capacity, so it'll get a lift line uh, a lot of days. But we decided to include that and, and create what we call the ridge terrain. So the steep stuff you can hike to on the rest of the mountain and also the steep stuff you can access riding the Slushman's Lift is called ridge terrain and the rules there are transceiver required. Strongly recommend the shovel partner probe uh, we don't try to enforce that. We don't say you have to have those things, but we do say you have to have the transceiver in order to ride the lift. And then uh, we put the boundary next to Saddle Peak to the south, the south boundary of Bridger Bowl is along the edge of this Saddle Peak avalanche path, which is one of the biggest avalanche paths in the Bridger Range. And it's one of these stubborn angle, much of the starting zones at the top of that are in that 35 to 38 degree so it doesn't go very often. We also, up until 2008, we had closed boundaries. Another one of these cops and robbers things. It's all forest land, it's your land, public land outside our boundaries. The general forest service guidance at the time and for some time before that and still today is, is that ski areas should not uh, restrict your access to your public land outside of the ski area unless there's some extenuating circumstances. And we certainly have this situation where people could get into a lot of trouble right outside our boundaries. 
but we're not alone in that. There's many ski areas, as you know, around the country have the same problem. And uh, so anyway, we, at the same time in 08, changed our, here's our ridge terrain, here's our rule inbounds, is the transceiver, and, and you can leave the boundary at various places. It's kind of an open boundary on the slushman's side. But we place that boundary immediately adjacent to, as soon as you cross the boundary, you're in the, a lot bigger stakes avalanche paths that we don't do any, any avalanche work on. And there's a big cliff band through the middle of the, of the major slide path coming off the saddle. So that, that's, that raises the terrain trap stakes, let's say. Uh, you wouldn't want to ride in one of the bigger slides that happen out there. In exchange for uh, uh, saying we're going to open the boundaries, we said we're going to make a real effort to educate, and we do that to this day. The first year we, we created, with help with some local high school kids, made something like 5,000, 8,000 copies of a, a CD that has uh, uh, just some, here's what's the difference when you cross the boundary, here's the safety thing, here's why you're taking your life in your hands. And we try to hit people every year. Uh, I just gave a talk at the MSU saw here a week or two ago regarding the what's going on if you go to saddle. And that must be ultra important because of the college population, right? Every every fall you get a new crop of freshmen coming in, many of whom are here to ski, right? Yeah, yeah, and and you know you can do all the all the talk of your blue in the face about how dangerous something is but people go up there and they see people having fun they see all the tracks out there they see the thing isn't avalanching hasn't in the last few days and so they go every now and then we do have we've had one fatality now uh, two springs ago in april 2018 we lost a guy right on saddle we've had a lot of close calls we've had people asking for help out of the cliffs and and one of the things that's hard to get through to people is that we aren't doing any avalanche mitigation work on Saddle Peak. We stop short of that cliff band stuff and, and the stakes change once you go past the boundary. And so does the rescue scenario. So that it doesn't seem much different to somebody there outside the boundary out in the football field, but they're above those cliffs, they're below cornices that we haven't been working on, and a lot of other skiers that could be above them. And as the county search and rescue people who go to save them, we, uh, we're not going to put our people at risk to run out there and save them. So you get hurt inside the boundary, we're running straight at you. We're going to be there in five minutes, most of the time or less. And outside the boundary, it's going to be more like half hour, 45. You might be where you can yell to us from the boundary and it still might take us half an hour to get to you with your broken leg or whatever's going on because we're going to clear everybody out of the way. We're going to analyze the situation uh, and we're going to and we're going to affect it safely. So having people understand that when they leave the boundary that they're changing their their uh, rescue options and the stakes that they're playing for. They're putting more bullets in the Russian roulette gun. It's not totally empty when you're inside the boundary either, uh, avalanche-wise or other things, hitting trees, getting hit by somebody else, all of those things are hazards we take. And, and I'm not saying don't do that. I say go big. You don't want to get old and 66 like me. So um, when if there is a rescue need on Saddle Peak, um, 
notably the Bridger Patrol is probably responding, but responding under jurisdiction of the county. Is that how that works? That's right. We get a call. We, we know there's been an incident on Saddle Peak. Our first call is to the sheriff, and, and uh, we'll explain to them what, what situation. We have a great relationship with our county search and rescue folks. Explain to them the situation, whether we think we can handle it or not ourselves. Uh, typically, if it's outside the boundary, uh, those guys will at least start coming up. And they may mobilize quite a few people. If we know there's been a, a serious avalanche with, with some people involved in it, we'll have quite a bit of mobilization going on. Then we're going to close the Slushman's Lift just to keep any access from happening. Uh, and we're going to put somebody at the top in a situation where they can see enough spotter to see when we clear everybody out of the way. Uh, those people that are out there are going to affect some sort of partner rescue in most cases. And what do they teach you in Avalanche 1? To partner rescue, you're dead. If you're buried and you're suffocating, the county folks aren't going to save you. You're done if your partners don't get you. And that's where the, the partner with the shovel knows how to run the transceiver is a pretty good idea. Uh, anyway, we're going to let that play out. We're going to let the people try to save each other. They're in the backcountry. And it's backcountry as soon as you get past the boundary. Uh, as, as we get things figured out, and uh and make all the right arrangements see that people are out of the way then we might put our first people out there to, to try to get close enough to see what's going on uh we've had for the last few years we've had a camera mounted out on one of our gun mounts that takes a picture of that terrain every 10 seconds during the time when people are accessing you you reference uh, uh some studies that have been done using that photography of how people behave out there anyway we can run a person right to that camera, grab the card out of it, plunk it in the computer, and we can see the terrain from there with binos and, and talk people into what's going on and maybe capture in those 10 seconds photos. We can see who was involved and where they might be to help, help with a rescue situation. Uh, then we have dogs, and we'll put the dogs out there. We do have this advantage that no one should be getting there without having a transceiver now some of them maybe their transceiver doesn't work or it's destroyed in the trauma from the from the wreck you know there's a there's a lot of scenarios where where uh, or they snuck on mm. and they figured out some other way to try to make the indicator there's kind of an indicator that you have to make the light flash and the and the buzzer go off or you can't get on the chair they're always trying to figure out ways it goes clear back to the early days he had to show it to us doug coombs and his buddies they'd have one transceiver, so one guy would hold that up, and the other would have the little canvas pouch from the transceiver with a block of wood in it, and he'd hold that up, and off they'd go. And uh, they figured out other tricks. But anyway, so there's a possibility that somebody would end up out there and, and turn into a, a lot longer rescue than, than what we have with the luxury of the transceivers taking us right to you. Doug, I appreciate that you haven't been using the term side country or slack country, right? Once you cross that boundary, you are definitively in the back country. Yeah, that's right. It, it, that's where I guess where we're getting at. What's the difference? Well, to, to, uh, and there are ski areas where they, they run tours, uh, and they, and the, the ski patrol maybe even does some avalanche work outside of their boundaries. Uh, we don't. We we as employees we don't go past the boundary. Uh, 
a lot of our guys will ski that terrain on their days off and uh it just to know it and to check it out now and then we'll run uh missions that we're where we're looking at our rescue options and that more or less as search and rescue folks uh figuring out how we'll do that but yeah there's a big change and it's not visible it's not something you can see if you knew to look at the cornices you would see that cornices are a great deal different but they're kind of a lot of the inbounds cornices are extremely steep knife edge drop right off so just cantilevers out over thin air and, and it's a bit of a convex roll more at the top of saddle peak it turns mm. into this big wide open nowhere to hide stubborn angle thing with this big fat blob cornice on it that's that's uh sits there all year in fact you can still see it in in uh, july and august a lot of years will be a little white ribbon along the top of saddle peak It'll be the only snow left in the bridgers hmm. and it's that big cornice melting still uh, but every now and then somebody will walk out on it or it'll drop a big box car on its own and uh, and that'll be enough to step down find a weak layer and then it's katie bar the door whatever that means <laughs> So, Doug, I'm curious about the changes in in terrain use that you've seen since that lift has been put in and there's easier access into Saddle Peak. Have you seen, so let's see, we're going on 11 years and Slushman's been in? Yeah, something like that. 10 now probably, 10 seasons. And so have you seen any changes in terrain decision-making from riders heading into the backcountry? I think the biggest change is just in the numbers. Yeah. There hasn't, uh, no one's, there's always been examples of what are they thinking? But people just throw caution to the wind and go for it. And they always have. And, and uh, y you know, we're getting through to some people with that education stuff, but but not everybody. And uh, and like I say, we're just farting against thunder when it looks like good tracks. And, all those guys are getting away with it, and there's a steady stream of 40 people walking up there. How could it be a hazard today? Right. Uh, so we, we hold our breath on that sort of thing, but I think it's just that there's lots and lots more people going. And that can be somewhat beneficial in this whole trampling ski stabilization type of idea, but with the, with the rapid wind loading, you just can't stay ahead of it. That's what gets people on saddle is the hard slabs. Mm -hmm. And you combine the fact that it's not all that steep in those starting zones with how stable hard slabs typically can be. And, and it might be once in four years that we have an incident. But if there's people crawling around out there all the time every day, that time every four years is somebody's going to be in the way is a good chance we've 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 had a lot of luck we don't talk about it much but but it's it's a magical place and people take care of each other there it's a friendlier place than a lot of places in the world and and uh hopefully it stays that way you know <laughs> go mary poppins as long as we can <laughs> and do you guys post the the forest service avalanche center hazard rating and, and forecast at the exit point or anything like that we, we post two of them, or two or three different places we post that. Uh, one at a gate that's out on the north side, and one at the top of the Slushman's Lift. Okay. The main ones that people can look at. And then, uh, but that's uh, mtavalanche.com. Uh, sign up for that thing. Read, it, read your email every day. You get that thing going and, and study it from the beginning of the year, you're going to know. There's going to be years where it doesn't make sense very often at all to go ski that kind of terrain. 
I'm a terrain guy. You look at terrain and, and it's there. It's right in front of you. Uh, if you, if you go in avalanche terrain long enough, for as long as I have, tried to make avalanches every day in it, you learn quite a bit about where it goes, where it doesn't, where's the safe spots, how to travel and in that kind of terrain. But the terrain's right there in front of you all the time. And the, and the big problems with the saddle terrain are stuff I've been talking about here, the stubborn angle that, that limits how often it goes. Nowhere to hide out there. It's a big, wide open area. And then the terrain trap issues, which are trees and cliffs mainly. There's some steep little gullies that you could get train trapped in as well if you were still going by then. Doug, I was wondering if you'd be willing to recount a story or two of a close call or moments of learning throughout your career. Okay, well, the first time I darn near died in avalanche was at Sugar Bowl. And back in those days, early 70s, we had six transceivers. They were hot dog skaties. And we had a lot of mornings, we had eight people doing the avalanche work. And we didn't always take the transceivers. We just used them on the bigger avalanche days and then put them back. And this particular morning, there was only three or four inches of new snow, but there'd been significant winds. And so the boss told us, well, we don't need any shots today, and you don't need the transceivers. So we head up, and my job at Sugar Bowl on that route that morning was included the east face of Lincoln. Well, it was a west wind, 70-mile-an-hour winds had been blowing all during this four inches of snow. And so it had loaded, significantly loaded this east face of Lincoln. And riding up there with my partner, who was the route leader, we discussed it, and, and his theory was, well, that wind's blowing so hard, it's going to drift that snow over the top, and uh, there'll be a slab, but it's going to be lower down on the slope because the wind's so hard. It'll be lower down on the slope. So we go out there, and, we, and we're doing a couple things wrong already, we learned later in life. Ski cutting hard slabs is often not a very good idea. But the worst idea is to come up with some theory and then abandon your fundamentals because you're so sure that you're right and that's what my partner did we got there and he and he just made a ski cut across lower than one should on this hard slab that had loaded that thing and, and uh, he was a scrawny little guy and didn't get anything to go and I was a bigger guy than him and I went second and I still wasn't I'd been arguing that Maybe we didn't want to go that low. So I went higher than he did, but still not high enough and came out on the slope, jumping across the slope. And, and sure enough, I broke it out probably, I'll say, two to three feet hard slab, ripped out big, went down, cleared down, shook the trees way down there at the bottom and left me standing on the bed surface with a bunch of hang fire above me. And I tiptoed back out the edge, hiked back up, went out one jump at the top and all the rest of that hang fire went. So I was extremely lucky that it hadn't broken above me and we'd made a fundamental mistake. I think if you pr approach everything with fundamentals and don't let your ego or your convinced that you're smart enough to abandon those fundamentals, you're better off. That was a lesson from that particular avalanche. Another one that almost got me, and there's only been these two, really. That I mean, there have been a lot of little slides that, mm -hmm. that I got caught and, and uh, 
got better at getting out of, for instance. Uh, but I was at Copper Mountain for two years, and this particular incident, this was mid-70s, the, the whole Union Bowl, it was called back then, uh, had no lifts in it, was permanently closed terrain. And uh, we had walked up a ridgeline with a cornice on it and thrown, I'll say, seven shots over that cornice onto the starting zones below the cornice and, and nothing. We had two shots left. We got to the top of this cornice route and out within the bowl, there was a little breakover where it was a little steeper called something like the groin and the tenderloin. If anybody out there from Copper Mountain knows where that is. Anyway, there's pictures of the slide I got. I went out there and stood at the breakover, lit two shots at once, trying the Simo thing. Threw one low on this steeper spot and one at the top of the steeper spot. And I probably let that fuse burn for the half its burn time and was kind of looking around and decided right over there ahead of me was a kind of a faint ridge line. There was a little tree, a knee-high tree. I'd go stand by that. So I walked the rest of the way over to that tree, turned around, and I was looking back at my partner back on the cornice. And the shots went off perfectly on the Simo thing. And that thing broke probably 100 yards above me couple feet deep and I'm standing there and it's rumbling down out in front of me and I hear the noise behind me and I turn around and the rest of that bull all the way up to the peak had come out probably six feet at the highest part same deal goes rumbling way to the bottom shakes the trees and and if you see the picture there's a little skinny hang fire left little finger of snow on that faint ridge I was standing on my ski tracks on it and, and uh so anything in the bowl that didn't go was right where I was standing. So that was another lucky one. As far as the, the fundamentals mistake there, I would say it's it was my location safety to to do that sort of shot, a simul shot out in the middle of all of that terrain. There really wasn't anywhere to hide. The only way to have been able to do that maybe would be well some sort of remote. Uh, the, uh, tram wire, something to get a shot out there, throw them as far as we could from the ridge, call it good, mm -hmm. uh, or a long fuse and a runaway thing. But depending on the instability, you'd have to have fairly stable conditions trying to go after uh, a persistent weak layer problem, something like that, to, to be willing to leave something there with long fuses and try to run away in an exposed situation. Sure. Oh, thanks for sharing those. I was hoping you could speak a little bit about what makes a good ski patroller. Boy, tough question. What makes a good ski patroller? Well, you have to be a hard worker. We can't, we can't uh, uh, be allergic to hard work. Long, hard days, athletic, uh, intelligent, low ego helps, uh, and, and, uh, and be able to get along with others. There's a lot of people skills involved in ski patrolling as well as, you know, technical skiing ability and ropes. And you got to be a half doctor, a cop, a psychologist. In fact, there's a listener that wrote in right before we started this interview that he, he's looking to get in the industry. He wants to get into the snow safety industry. And, and my immediate reaction was well then you should go ski patrol you should go work somewhere where you can 
um, be part of an active avalanche mitigation program. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of people think that it's it's kind of a fast track into the snow safety industry. And, and I like what you said about the ability to work hard. And, and uh, actually, Don Sheriff quoted you just a couple of weeks ago about doing the, the hard jobs first or something to that effect of being willing to go out there. You're the new guy. You're the new woman, patroller, whatever, and you're willing to do the job that nobody else wants to do. Well, I think that's right. I, I, I think that you, you do have to have that, that uh, attitude that, that I want to work hard. By being a great team teammate, team player, that's where you come into, I think what you're talking about with Don is the try to do the crappy job so your teammate doesn't have to. Right. If I go and do that first, then, then nobody else will have to do it. When I worked at Copper, I had a, just a great deal. I would go up there in the morning and uh, to the very top, and it was about, oh, probably a 20-minute or a little more hike to the peak. And I would get another partner, a transceiver, and a radio, talk somebody into making the hike. It was, it was a slog. I think we got it down to 17 minutes was the record for making it to that peak. And uh, and then we'd radio the guy that was, was the first aid room guy for the day, and he'd bring the company ambulance, whatever it was, five or six miles around towards Leadville. And we'd ski this big, long backside chute, gravel and gulch, it was called. And then the ambulance would bring us back to work and ride back. We'd ride back up. So by the time I got back to the top of the mountain, and now it's 10 o'clock, 10.30. I'm supposed to be working all day, right? And I've been basically screwing off, skiing out of bounds. So we'd go right into the dispatcher office, and we rotate a dispatcher. There'd be a whole list of work that had to get done that day. And the dispatchers always had a hard time getting the their fellow patrollers to because they weren't really the boss they were just boss for the day anyway i'd go right in there and i'd look for the two or three crappiest jobs on the list and just tell the guy i'll go do that one and that one and that one so i'd run out and get the sled and take all the garbage from the upper chalet down to the base area and throw, throw it on the dumpster and haul the sled all the way back up and then do one other thing by now it's lunchtime and and the dispatcher loves me he didn't know how he was going to get that crap done today and then so he would just let me ski the whole rest of the day. So I hardly ever got any wrecks. We didn't have radios then. So I was always out skiing. And when the injuries happened, the people that were inside waiting for the incidents would, would go out and, and uh, save the hurt people. And I got a raise for having a good attitude. <laughs> That's great. How about uh, any advice you'd give a, a new patroller heading out on their first avalanche mitigation route? Boy. That, you know, that's that's just, there's so much training to have that gets involved when you start working in this stuff. You know, you'd like to say, well, get yourself a heck of a good route partner. Get the right person to learn it all from. And hopefully you've learned a lot before you get to that stage. Uh, but listening and, and maintaining on the fundamentals. We all have to work with the same fundamentals. There's terrain, there's snowpack, there's safe travel. There's rescue skills. Those are some of the stuff that's going to be the same no matter what. And, and, and you can hone in, hone those skills to where you're, you understand that stuff, work at it to where you have that. At least you have that solid background. And you can bring that up. you got some old guy like me that's saying, hey, let's go over here. Hey, wait a minute. Isn't it route selection? Why would you go that way? Isn't that a 
too much exposure? You know, those, those kind of questions that uh, look at things critically. Back to the how's a person get into the work, I touched on this earlier that there are places that don't treat their employees as well as other places, and they're the ones that have the turnover. So that's where you, you get your start, I think, is, is you know, you can, you can come to Jackson Hole or Bridger Bowl or somewhere where it's probably a pretty good job, ski patron, and, and try to convince a boss that, that uh, you know, you're God's gift to doing this and he should hire you. But you're going to do better at one of the places that really needs people. If you get an EMT card, you got an EMT card in your pocket and some strong skiing skills, uh, climbing skills, rope skills, and that would be a good thing to have as well, uh, and, and a willingness to work hard, I think a person can get on somewhere, but it might be one of the places that has a bigger turnover, and it might be a place that doesn't have very much avalanche work. A lot of the hills, it's variable, you know, how much of that sort of work you, you get to do. But to get the solid background... You may have to work at a place that isn't the place you want to really spend your career. It's still, though, it's way better than most jobs. You know, it's not even a job if you're doing something that you're really passionate about. When you think about other jobs that are available in the avalanche industry, uh, ski patrolling is the one I ended up in, and I really like it because the job is go out there and make avalanches. And, and all of us can do that. It, education is, is another uh, career path. That's a little harder one to make work because you've got to get people to pay money to listen to you, to come and take a class. And, and a lot of people that want to learn this stuff aren't making a lot of money, isn't their priority. So they don't, they don't have that kind of cash kicking around. To, to, so it's, a hard, it's hard to get rich off of any of this stuff, obviously, but... Ski patrol is nice because you got an employer that pays you every day, all day, to go out there and ski around. And so I really liked that part of the job. Uh, I got into education a little in the, in about 1980. Another guy, Tom Pratt, and I uh, decided through something called the community university, you could you could sign up to teach a course. Mm. I'd like to teach a course in basket weaving. And I'd like to charge $10 a person, and I'll have four lectures or four sessions, and I'm only going to teach it if I get 14 students. You know, they had a whole form you'd fill out. So Tom Pratt and I decided, well, we're going to teach a course on avalanches. And people weren't doing that much. This is like 1980. Rod Newcomb had started the American Avalanche Institute in about 75 or so. So there was some avalanche education, obviously, out there, but not a lot, and there weren't the the forecast centers yet with their whole education drives. So we sat around a lot of evenings brainstorming about about uh, how we were going to do all this stuff. And, and I swear we coined the name for our course. It was called Snow Avalanche Awareness. And to this day, there's still avalanche awareness classes, they call it, in the system we have now, which is basically the hour-long just introduce people to what's going on and tell them there is a lot to learn and it's all out there, and by the way, get a transceiver and learn how to run it. So anyway, we we ran that course, and uh, and it's still going today. It's it's part of the Friends of the Avalanche Center. Ron Johnson took it over after a few years. Uh, he he's a great educator. He did a real nice job with it. It ran through the uh, after after we'd done it for a couple of years. It turned into part of the MSU Outdoor Recreation. Okay. Part of the university, and then they signed up Ron Johnson and 
and got people to take it. But I don't know how many thousands of people have been through that right. that course here. But after that, though, that was my that was my foray into avalanche education, and and I've kind of left that because I, I feel like I'm lucky to have an actual job with an employer to just go make avalanches. Right. Another thing I think that people can can do, I like, I, I really believe in trying to see the terrain, looking at what's in front of you and being able to say, here's the edges, there's where it's safe, there's where I think it would slide. If I wanted to make this avalanche, how would I do that? And I'm not saying go out and try to make avalanches. Well, I am, but just not in the big stuff. You can make an avalanche on your car windshield and see what the snow's doing. When I start out in the morning and start cleaning off my car, I'm looking at the new snow. When I get to PHQ, there's a old two by four railing. I used to just bang that, give it a good hard shock and see if it slid off the railing or stuck to the wood. Uh, and then I just start stabbing with my pole. I wear those little baskets, little racer man baskets. It looks like a Oreo cookie on the end of my ski pole and I'm calibrated to that thing. So I don't, I don't dig a whole lot of holes. I don't carry a snow saw. I don't do ECTs and that. I look at everybody else's. I want to see what they're doing, but but I just scoop at the snow, stab at the snow, and see everywhere. It's with the, the variability, you get to see what's there and, and feel what's there. I go somewhere I haven't been. I'm going to want to look at the forecast for the people that are are there that know what's going on. I might ask somebody, what's the season like? What do you got for persistent wheat layers? That's the biggest bogey in the in the snow understanding the snow it's pretty easy to figure out if the new snow is stuck on or not mm-hmm. and that's kind of one of the questions you ask if you do do a snow pit you go out there and you want to say let's go check the snow you know you can get zeroed in on trying to see the crystals and uh, and not see the big picture so what do you want to ask what's the new snow layer how, how well is it glued on is it going to come off on me what sort of wind loading has been monkeying with this new snow layer where is the wind loads? And can I see wind loads? Do, do I have this terrain vision to be able to see the stuff? Uh, and then what do I have for persistent wheat layers? And that question is a hard one. That's where the ski pole, I might feel it go. And in, in this country, it's going to zoop to the ground. At bottom last four or five inches, nothing most years. And there may be other, a real hard layer, and then it goes real easy right below that, those, those sort of things. Uh, little experiments like that and then you can jump on the road cuts on the edge of the gully that's a terrain trap you know so you got to be smart about it and uh, jump on the right spot in that but but being able to see that terrain and then bring the snow to it with it the snow's a lot more complicated and difficult the terrain's right there in front of you if you use the analogy of a train track that we got a track there's an avalanche track is one of the names i show you on the avalanche pass and you live out in a big 20 acres of sagebrush and there's a railroad track going through the middle, you know, and you want to know how do I avoid getting hit by the train? Well, how are you going to avoid getting hit by the train? If you can recognize the railroad tracks and just stay off them, that's great. You're not going to get hit by the train. But in the avalanche world, that's where we want to ski. The avalanche pass is a great powder run, you know, so I'm going to go to the tracks. All right, well, maybe I could get the schedule then. And when the train's coming by, well, the, the schedule's a little different. It's when this when there's the weak layer or when there's the rapid loading and so forth, that'll do the, the, the snow part of it. But, but you gotta zero in on what are the right questions. With the train track scenario, I don't need to go over there and study the, the ballast rock 
and see, oh, this is purple rock. That's different than the green rock. You know, that's not part of the big question of what am I, am I safe over there or right here and all of that kind of thing that's right in front of you. It's not rocket science. It's just, it's just something you can see, but you have to go there. It's another saying we have is to know there, go there. Mm -hmm. the, the guy that stays home and says he knows everything is never wrong. And uh, avalanche work, avalanche mitigation work is pure science. You have a, you have a hypothesis. You say, I think it's unstable today, and you can go out there and jump on it or throw the shot and uh, answer the question. That's science. I thought it was this way. And, and just because you think it's that way, don't follow that instinct at the expense of your fundamental safe travel mm. procedures. Yeah, it's, it certainly seems like you're a fundamentals guy, and, and um, I'm interested how what your perspective of, well, we've got a lot of information at our fingertips these days, right? And, and there's a lot of observations coming in from observers from the Avalanche Center and, and the general public, and a lot of research going on these days. Do you, you ever think a lot of this stuff kind of muddies the waters, or any thoughts on that? Well, science is made of building blocks. The scientists focus in on, on individual little things. We've got this world-class uh, cold regions or uh, cold room mm -hmm. science here that these guys do, where they're, they're figuring stuff out at a building block level. And every time they do more of this stuff, it, it adds to the ability to see the big picture. I'm a lazy big picture guy. I don't go out there and dig the 400... Ron Simenhoy snow pits, you know, Carl Birkeland. Those guys, those guys have worked really hard, and, and a lot of other people do, uh, uh, to, to find all these details in that. But if you look at the big picture, uh, uh, Ed LaChapelle talked about a ascending spiral. We come back to these, the same ideas, the weak layer. What happens at an ice crust? And people studied what happened at an ice crust in the 60s. And now people are studying what happens at an ice crust with better tools uh, and with all that foundation that those people in the 60s gave them. So, so we're, we come back to all of these different principles and look at them again in another light. And if you are a scientist or you do want to get involved in that, really work hard at finding the previous research use that stuff learn from the people that went before it, it's sometimes you'll see a person who will say uh, this paper involves X subject which no one has looked at before and and it's you know and I can list four people that put their life's work into looking at that you know but they didn't find that they just you know nobody I've talked to and looked at that stuff so so and we can learn a lot from all the different science and that that's that's gone ahead but I still believe in going out there and stabbing your pole in the snow, feeling the snow, trying to make the avalanches in the right spots where you're not going to endanger others. And that's really the big rule is don't endanger others. Mm -hmm. That's If I only had one rule at the ski area, it would be if you endanger others, you can't play. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, go nuts. Go big. There's nine billion of us. If you, you, know, you go too big, then you won't get old and have arthritic knees. Uh, but nah, be careful. I like you, so keep stay around. <laughs> there you have it. Well, Doug, I really appreciate you sitting down with me this afternoon and 
and chatting about your career and, and Bridger Bowl and giving some advice to some younger avalanche professionals and skeep trollers out there. Thanks for your time. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you all for listening to that great interview with Doug Richmond. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. If you want to go a step further, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Uh, give us a follow on the social media. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Um, that'll just essentially notify you of, of new episodes that are coming out and give you some pictures to go along with the spoken word of the storytelling on the show. Our artwork, of course, was done by Mike T. You the man, T. Music today was performed by Ketza, and those tracks were made available through the permission of the artist. And as always... Big thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions. I apologize on the last episode, I said MND by TAS, but it is TAS by MND Group. Um, Thanks for all your support, Jay and the crew at TAS and MND. And of course, 10 Barrel Brewing. You guys need to go check out their podcast called Fully Aligned. It is hilarious. If you need a break from some of the more serious side of life, um, crack a cold 10-barrel beer and enjoy their podcast called Fully Aligned. Um, It's It's pretty awesome. I've been really enjoying jamming out to that while I've been painting the house. Um, and not to forget uh, support from Interwest Insurance as well. So thank you guys all for the continued support of the show. I'm going to do my very best to continue to bring you the best interviews within the snow and avalanche world. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.